you're best friends with the founder of the Lubbock County Militia, you get your own radio show. It's The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. I took a double take out on the interstate when I saw him making eyes at me. Hey there, howdy! Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for telling a friend that you hang out on the other side of Texas, most talked about afternoon radio show. Around, I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson, little sister Lauren Huff across the way, turning the knobs, hitting the outros, the intros, making things work, and uh, we're glad that you've taken time to join with us today. you got thoughts on the program, you can email show at othersideoftexas.com, and... You know, of all the things, everybody needs to take a second here. I want to talk about West Texas for a little bit. All these local media groups that are putting out headlines that the Texas Tech Veterinarian School of Medicine is a done deal in Amarillo. Everybody needs to just take a deep breath and step back. Because in each one of those stories, you're going to see words like pledged, and a bigger word, if. And whenever you see words like pledged and if, that's present progressive. That's not past tense. This is something that is still underway. And I can tell you, based on conversations I had yesterday afternoon, late into yesterday evening, people know that this isn't a done deal. And I want to take a few minutes here and talk to you about why it's not a done deal because there's plenty of Texas politics to play out. You know, on Monday, Amarillo Globe put out a piece that said, Peace is, quote, coming together. Texas Tech's Amarillo Vet School concept is gaining focus. <coughs> Excuse me. Written by Doug Clark of the Amarillo Globe News. And... You know, Jason Her Herrick, the way that Amarillo is spearheading this thing is through its Economic Development Corporation, and through that, the Amarillo Veterinary School Steering Committee, and Jason Herrick is the chairman. Now, I don't know Jason. I'm sure he's a fine fella, and I don't have anything bad to say about him, but I just want to go through these two stories, one on Monday and then another that was published online last night. And let's just think critically through some things. Now, first of all, the land on which <coughs> the vet school is going to be built was donated through the Mariposa Village Community Trust. And so you're going to have a property in Amarillo in which the health, human health, pharmaceutical health, and animal health will all be on the same campus. And... Amarillo, yeah, I didn't realize this, but Amarillo says that 60% uh, of its tax revenue is derived from people who come from outside of Amarillo. So I think Lubbock's like at 33%. So construction on the school would begin, and I appreciate Mr. Clark not saying will begin, but would begin in the fall of 2019, students arriving in 2021 in the first graduating class in 2025. Now, yesterday, uh, a big announcement in Amarillo that the Amarillo City Council approves the Amarillo Economic Development Corporation's funding pledge 
or the Texas Tech Vet School. So what's gone down here is that they see in the end we have 21 and we 21 million and there's a need for another 69 million which includes an earlier give of i think 15 million from the amarillo economic development corporation so there's 69 million short now here's what's going on in the background in texas politics is that you can raise 90 million dollars here but texas a&m already has $88 million, and A&M's going to make a, what I consider to be a tired old argument that we can just build a pipeline that will attract people to, a to West Texas A&M, and I don't know, I'm trying to gather some numbers on how much money A&M's put into that campus over the last decade, and how that compares to $88 million all of a sudden for its undergrad vet services, but we're going to attract kids to Canyon, we're going to pipeline them down to College Station, and upon graduation, we're going to send them right back up. So it's Plinko and Reverse Plinko, the higher education version of Reverse Plinko going on. But whatever you think about the theory, the money's there. So you can, you can say, well, your theory is terrible. Well, the money's still there. So a woman has an idea of what she wants to look like and says, you know, I can go in, I get this lipo and this Botox and do this collagen with my lips and this, that, and other. And you say, well, I don't know if that's a good idea, but you know what that woman can tell you is I got the money. So, okay. <laughs> it's your theory. Go for it. Now, on this other side of this is that Tech has $90 million, much of it pledged, as at least $69 million of it through the Amarillo Economic Development Corporation. Now, I think that they made this that move right now, one, to offset John Sharp, a 40-year political pro, if you hadn't followed this. John Sharp was a controller of Texas. He's been in Texas politics for 40 years, and Sharp has big movement right now because the end game and I'm coming back to where we are in the process right now the end game is that both and why this is not a done deal is that Texas Tech and Texas A&M go into the next legislature and Tech says initially we need 18 million dollars to graduate a class of you know in the next few years of around 10 or less 18 million per year yeah. And then once the school begins to grow, that ask is going to become larger within the formula funding. Now, here's what John Sharp's going to say is, I already have built, and he'll say we, but he means I, <laughs> have built this infrastructure at West Texas A&M. And you're duplicating services. Because what's crazy about this is A&M has committed $88 million, Texas Tech has committed slash pledged $90 million, all within a 15-mile vicinity, a 15-mile radius in the panhandle. $178 million going into a place that didn't have many dollars at all <coughs> preceding 2000, mid-2016, or I should say 2015, uh, mid-2015. So, a ton of money all of a sudden pledge in this area. But you're going to have to say to lawmakers who are all, already anticipating cutting their budgets, 
that we want to fund the Texas Tech Vet School. And Sharp is then going to make the stand, and I don't know if he's going to conjole. I don't know if he's going to grab lapels. I don't know what he's going to grab. But he's going to make the point that you're duplicating services, and whether or not you believe it or not, this is going to be the framing. You're squeezing the Texas taxpayers out of between 18 and eventually 50-ish million dollars a year. To build its vet school. For duplicating what they're already doing is going to be his point. But I th so, so the vet school was in. That was the big deal. You know, Tech gets the vet school. Then the vet school's out. They got $4 million for it. Right. And now you begin, you know, exploratory to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But now you're in a position where now there's ongoing funding. And right. so, you know, I think if you're sharp right now, what you're thinking is, wow, these people are serious. Like, now they put all their chips and they're calling a bluff. But I, I think he's got some cards. I'm not so saying he's got a vote. So you think it might vote. happen? Well, you I, think he'll I, block I, it? I think it's very possible he could because uh, we've heard from enough people on this show and various shows to know that that there's a very finicky uh, a very low uh, very little appetite to absorb more costs in the budget even though within that budget 50 million dollars is a drop in a lot of ways but whenever you're looking at cutting other services and then you've got this thing and Sharp's going to make a reduplication I, of services. I argument. understand that it's, you know, he could look at it from the duplicating services, but Texas is so big. I mean, you could literally fit like three or four states in it. it I just, I don't see the problem with having more than it one. It is big, but this side of I-35, you got very few state legislators, uh, representatives, and senators. So what kind of horses do you have to offset Sharp's arguments? And, you know, that could play into a speaker's race. I don't know how much people, like, if you're down in Harris County uh, and you're looking at this race, or you're in Fort Worth or Dallas or Collin County, and you're looking at this, I call it a race, you're looking at this issue you know, it's like whenever my kids come to me and they're like, Dad, let me show you what I did on Minecraft. I've got about two minutes worth of attention that I want to put towards that, right? Because I want to see what they've got going. I want to see what they've created. But I'm not going to sit there for days on the end and hear them tell me about Minecraft because i got other things to do. And I think that's how urban and suburban legislators look at this situation is I'll look at this for a couple of hours, but I'm not going to absorb a day in it. I'm not going to absorb a week in it. And because it is, it's if to them, it is of little consequence what's going on over here. And so I would say right now the governor is going to issue a letter at any time to notify the Legislative Budget Board that they need to begin convening. He'll send a letter out to all the state agencies and tell them you need to cut certain amount or you can add a certain amount. He's, I think he's going to tell them to cut, but not by much, maybe 3% or so, and then to uh, make preparations for that. And that triggers the Legislative Budget Board. And so Amarillo is trying to get in before the Budget Board gets together so that they can get the ask 
they being tech can get the ask in place. So we got it paid for. Aliens got their stuff paid for. Best man wins. And so it's All not right. it's not a done deal yet. Now, on top of that, they say that uh, the estimated the Amarillo EDC it says that the estimated annual economic impact of the veterinarian school will be seventy six million dollars. Now, I think that Sharp has to see that and say, if they're saying that 70 is under what period of time, is that immediately? And if so, how? But that must be an, aggre- that must be an average amount of time over a given amount of years that they're willing to come back to the table and put their name on quotes that say $76 million, so that if you're in Amarillo, you feel pretty good. I'm going to put up 69, and we're going to take care of that in the first year. And then everything on top of it. Now, will Amarillo be willing, the Amarillo Economic Development, will they be able and willing to put forward that kind of money going forward? So, I mean, I feel like the vet school would be such an economical growth for the panhandle, especially, you know, with Amarillo and Lubbock. But and see, I don't know. We're going to have somebody on to explain to me how it's going to be such an economic boom. And, and I'm not saying it's not going to be. I just need to know how. So right, you want to see numbers, you want to hear the facts. That's the groundwork of where we stand right now. That's kind of the other side of Texas 101 on what's going on with the vet school. And um, uh, we'll see where this thing begins to play out. What we do know is that the regents will take a vote next Thursday, May 17th. And then we'll know what the ask is going to be. And then the chess table will be set is Wednesday and the professor is here Ross Ramsey executive editor of the Texas Tribune Ross Ramsey how are you I'm fine how are you guys i uh, doing pretty well doing good I'm looking at uh, all the background on uh, this vet school thing it's it's gonna get kind of crazy uh, we're gonna see some real chess played behind uh, with a couple of formidable Texas political chess players and John Sharp and Bob Duncan. Yeah, I think that's going to be pretty interesting. Um, they're both, as you say, they're both very good at this, and, you know, they both want what they want. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Like, I've heard people, just to go with the curveball right off the bat, no pun intended, but I've heard people say that, and somebody I really respect in Texas journalism told me that lots of McRaven's ouster at UT was because of this $90 million move into Houston. And it's apples to oranges, but still you've got two other chancellors making a $90 million move. I mean, it's not Harris County, but into uh, Randall County in Texas. It's it's pretty fascinating to watch. Well, you know, the McRaven problem was that he didn't uh, mind his politics while he was doing it. You know, he surprised the Houston senator whose district that was in and whose um, favorite university, the University of Houston, was most directly threatened by that. And if he, you know, anticipated that and got a little bit of ahead, of ahead of it, he might not have had the problems that he had. The difference here really is that, all, all respect to McRaven, but Sharp and Duncan were both really, really talented legislators and sort of know how to make their moves over there in a way that doesn't upset the capital and lose the fight before you even get to, you know, what the fight's about before them. Hmm. 
You will respect me in Texas politics. That's what I hear you saying, Ross. Um, well, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, they they have the purse strings. You gotta take care of them. Make sure mom and dad aren't mad at you when you ask for something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I so Ross, for people who are just getting into Texas politics and listening, I want to I want to get into the speaker's race. But before we just launch off into would be weeds. The Speaker presides over the Texas House. He's one of 100, I should say they, excuse me. They are one of 150 members in the House, elected by the House itself. But what role does the Speaker play in Texas politics 2018 going into 2019? And I presume, I mean, you've, you write three pieces a week at the Texas Tribune, uh, two, three analysis pieces, and it's May January's coming, and you're already on top of this. Uh, I assume that you think this is a pretty critical role in Texas government. Why? Well, it's all, it's a critical role, and it's also underway. I mean, this, you know, Joe Strauss said in October that he won't seek another term in the legislature or, you know, as speaker. And so the other 149 members of the House, you know, look up in some way, you know, when they're putting on their makeup or shaving in the morning and think they might be looking at a speaker in the mirror. Um, so it starts in October, and now we're starting to really get to the point where the members of the legislature are talking to each other and feeling each other out about you know, what their preferences might be in a replacement for Joe Strauss. So part of it is I'm writing about it you know, early, really because the members are talking about it early. There are four candidates already in the race to replace Joe Strauss. You have to file papers with the Texas Ethics Commission once you are spending or raising money for this thing, um, or if you're telling members that you'd like to be the next speaker. And so we've got four people officially in the race, and we've got probably a dozen or a dozen and a half more who I would characterize as explorers or seriously kicking the tires or about to file or at least you know seriously considering it. Um, and that's pretty normal in an open seat race. You're going to get a bunch of people looking at it. Not all of the people who will vote in this race have been elected yet. You know, we've still got some runoffs ahead of us next couple of weeks, and then we've got a general election in November. And the actual vote for the speaker will take place in January. But I expect that, you know, by the time we get out of the Christmas holidays, we'll know kind of how the house, who the house has settled on for their next speaker. And right now, the very personal politicking is well underway. Ross, is it, though, that some would describe the House as the last independent body in Texas and would see the, would see the governor in such a, such a philosophical and ideological trajectory that he, you're not going to get much independence there and that the Senate is hard set in the path that it's on, but the House might be the last place where people get to make independent votes. Do you think that's a fair description? No, not completely. I, you know, I, I understand the sentiment behind it. I don't think it's completely right. You know, the Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor, you know, had the, the House and the Senate, and then the Governor's in the middle, and the politics of those three officials, whoever is holding those positions at a given time, it's always two to one somehow. The House and the Senate against the Governor, or the House and the Governor against the Senate, and most recently it's been the Senate and the Governor against the House on some big issues. But there were some issues up, up there that, you know, the configuration was different. 
Right now, a lot of people are looking at the house and wondering if the next speaker, put an asterisk on that, is the sort of person who will stand against the governor and the lieutenant governor in the same way that Joe Strauss did on some issues like the bathrooms or um, local control of property tax increases or things like that. And when you're in a speaker's race, you're really thinking partly about the individual who will be speaker, but you're really thinking about the sense of the House. Is the Texas House, as a collective, wanting to stand on its own and or to get in line more with the, with the other two? Um, and one of the things that we're going to find out between now and January is, is, you know, collectively, where does the House stand? I suspect that, you know, the House has... Um, you know, if you if you try to push the Texas House traditionally, the House pushes back. They don't like getting pushed around. And you know, um, I think if the the Senate or the Governor's office you know tries to give them an indication of what they should do, the House will push back pretty hard. Yeah, it just seems like, like okay, Leeson, you can be Speaker of the House or you can dive in a pool full of ice and water. And I might take the pool full of ice and water. Um, if you want, if you want to have power, you want to have power. I mean, you know. But, the, I mean, what kind of power is it whenever you got to stand against the governor and the Senate? Because that's a that's a line that I think we're on here. Well, that's more of a line of power than um, just running with the pack. I mean, if you've got the um, the kind of personality that allows you to stand like that, and that's where the House wants you to stand they're going to appreciate what you're doing and they're going to keep you in office and you're going to be in a very powerful position. Without your consent, things don't pass. That control of the gate is the definition of power. Yeah. Until your husband or wife starts crying because of all the mailers that are coming in every election. <laughs> it's not easy. I, I, you know, ask anybody who sat in that seat. It is not an yeah. easy position. Like, you, but, you, you know, the people, who, the people who want to run things want that kind of pressure. Okay. But you think it's fair to say that the next House Speaker will likely be asked to stand against the governor and the Senate? I think it's safe to say that the next House Speaker will be an expression of where the House itself wants to stand in relation to the governor and the lieutenant governor. And it may be that the House says, let's get in line. Yeah. And what people need to understand is what there are, how many Democrats in the House now, Ross? There are 55 at the moment. It looks like, if you look at the maps and squint a little bit, the chances are that the Democrats will pick up a handful of seats at a minimum, so yeah. five or six at a minimum. So they come in with 61 out of the 150-member body, and that plays into the House's mood, its temperature, as it were. Uh, Ross Ramsey, at Ross Ramsey on Twitter, as we continue on here Man, we just handed the Lubbock Auditorium, Lubbock, let me start over, Lubbock Municipal Auditorium Coliseum over to Texas Tech. Big charter move in Lubbock. Six, I think Matt Dotry said 6% turnout on something that everybody has a lot to say on social media. Yeah. But can they take five or ten minutes to go vote? Uh, 94% says no. Survey says no. Um... But that's a microcosm of what's going on across the state. Why is Texas so anemic whenever it comes to showing up and participating in democracy, Ross? We're pretty lousy at it. You know, thank God for Hawaii because their turnout's worse than ours is. But we're 47th in the country in the 2016 election. Who's behind us? And Hawaii. Hawaii and who else? 
you know, I'd have to go look in the last in the last numbers. I just know Hawaii is right behind us. Maybe Alaska, um, and I'm gonna say uh, Wyoming. Who cares? <laughs> okay, yeah, go ahead. You know, the, the problem here is that very few people vote, and the people who do vote, you know, have an outsized say in how the state goes, or in the in the way that you know a city goes over here or a, a county goes over there. You know, it gives the power of everybody to very few people, and it lets small groups that are sometimes, you know, full of activists and extremists from one side or the other run the state and run, you know, run, run government and run a lot of these issues. Voters get really interested when there's a big, tough cost or where they feel like there's a direct relationship between what they're doing as voters and what's happening in the, you know, among the people that they're voting for. You know, if you feel like your vote is really going to count and it's going to count on this thing that's dear to you, you're more likely to vote than if you don't feel that way. Hmm. So, I'm not even going to ask you to talk political here, Ross, but let's say the League of, uh, the League of Women Voters comes into your office and says, Ross Ramsey, pitch us on three ways to to heighten voter participation, voter turnout. What would be a couple ideas that you'd had for them? You know, I don't know that I'd go that way. I would say, you know, the, that the, if you want people to vote, give them something to vote for and give them something, you know, that's more tangible. You know, when I was in high school, one of the first elections I ever voted in was an election to let um, the city of Denton, where I was going to college, serve beer to people like me. And I knew that if I went to the polls, that beer was at the end of the line. And, you know, the youth turnout in that one was a pretty good election. You know, we, had a, we had a tangible connection between what we were doing and what would happen as a result. If you don't feel that way, if you feel like you're just throwing a vote into, you know, another rock in the swimming pool, you know, your motivation to vote goes down. So, I, I, you know, the biggest, the biggest way to get people to vote is to... to you know, reestablish the connection between what they're, you know, that they're actually in control of something, that they're actually changing something when they vote. So are we going to segue here into uh, uh, what some call gerrymandering? We can. I think, you know, <laughs> we, had a, we had a conversation on our Facebook page, on the Texas Tribune's Facebook page, about somebody asked me whether gerrymandering or apathy was a bigger problem, and I think it's probably apathy. I think if, if you have very small numbers of voters voting, it allows people who draw the maps to manipulate them more easily. There's a place, there's a big giant district, it's a swing district that you know about, the 23rd Congressional District, goes from El Paso all the way to San Antonio and takes in most of the U.S.-Mexico border. And the people who drew the maps initially had a swing district there, and they took the Republican legislature, they wanted Republicans to have a better chance. So they took an area in that map that, it, that was made up of Hispanic voters who very consistently turned out, and replaced it with the same number of Hispanic voters who don't turn out. Hmm. So the map demographically looks exactly the same, but they replaced voting Hispanics with non-voting Hispanics, and that tilted the map to the Republicans. Will Hurd now has that seat. It's one of the things being contested in the Texas redistricting case. If turnout was higher, you wouldn't have had that play. Russ, you know what podcast I would love? 
I would love this is my this is my idea. I'll just pitch it to you and Evan, okay? And Ramshaw, y'all can all think about it. But what a load of BS with Ross Ramsey. And you sit down and you talk about something people are complaining about today, like redistricting, uh, like gerrymandering, and then you give perspective on 30 years ago, it was the Democrats who were gerrymandering. <laughs> what a load of yeah. BS with Ross Ramsey. <laughs> Might be a radio show. Maybe we could put something together. Hey, man. A weekly? <laughs> you could get all sorts of ads on that. It'd be fantastic. A lot of vacation money there, Ross Ramsey. Uh, every week, three pieces of analysis from Ross Ramsey there at texastribune.org. What a load of BS. That's, that's what we're going to call it. All right. Uh, little sister, so I'm going to go into this segment. I need you to effort for us here. Okay. Um, Ross just dropped on us. Just dropped on us that Texas is 47th in voter turnout in wow. the country. You know that's really disappointing, especially because Texans have so much pride in their state. Like Texas, everything's bigger in Texas. Everything's better in Texas. You think if it were a nation that more people would vote? I you know, I you know honestly, I really don't know. Um, I don't know how to make people. I don't know what to do to well, make I people think vote. People see it is what it is, and I think in a lot of these districts, it's just the same old, same old, hard left guy running against hard right guy, and the talking points are the same in the primaries, and then it's the same thing over again. And you don't talk about substantive things because you want to talk about what the pollsters are telling you. So, I I completely. Uh, empathize with people who are like, yeah, you know, I've got three baseball practices this week, two ballet practices, and then tutoring, and then we got some jujitsu on top of it. Oh, and birthday party this week, and that's after 40 to 50 hours of work. Uh, I don't have time to get my mind around the nuances of what's really going on underneath. Which, if you're me, you're thinking, maybe it's a bad move to run a radio program about something that few people care about. But that's kind of the, I wish that we had the the more you know, dun, 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 <laughs> that little uh, sound effect. But in the reason we talk about these things, the reason that I've taken off on this effort to make this entertaining and to make it as compelling as I'm able is because Texas politics Texas politics influence our day-to-day lives more so than any form of government. And, you know, Arrington, Congressman Arrington was in with us last week. I made that case, and here you've got a U.S. congressman who says, I do not disagree with you yeah. on that. Arrington needs to take care of, you know, education funding. He needs to take care of, you know, where we are in agriculture policy, where we are, you know, spearheading stuff like telemedicine and, you know, making some growth areas. And people can disagree with his record as it were, but that's not, that's beside the point. The point is Texas politics and the reason that your appraisal is where it is and why is it there and, you know, what's going to go on with your roads and what's going on with your hospitals and, you know, the whole litany. Texas politics matters, and it is a little disconcerting that so few people turn out because the stakes are high. I'm about to look and see what the number one state is. No, I don't want number one. I want 48, 49, and 50. Okay, I'm looking it up right now. While you do that, 
I want to. I love how that keyboard's like 20 years old. And I know, it's great. No, is like, that like, a keyboard like, or a sound effect? You're just yeah. wanting people to see, just seem like you're working. So, the New York Times. I'm about to get some West Texas aggression going. Dateline, Washington. President Trump's nomination of Gina Haspel to lead the CIA has revived debate over the agency's post-7 uh, September 11th interrogation program and still murky questions about her involvement. Now, on the eve of Senate confirmation hearing, a striking voice is trying to join the fray. Khalid Shahek Shahek Shake. I'm going to say Shake. Like like a scum of the earth Shake. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wants to enter the fray. Mr. Mohammed, the principal architect of the two, September 11, 2001 attacks, was captured in March 2003 and tortured by the CIA. This week, he asked a military judge at Guantanamo Bay, excuse me, for permission to share six paragraphs of information about Ms. Haspel with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Ms. Haspel ran a black site prison in Thailand where another high-level detainee was tortured in late 2002, but it is not known whether she was involved directly or indirectly in Mr. Muhammad's torture. Mr. Muhammad was held in secret CIA prisons in Afghanistan and Poland. In the weeks after his capture, an intelligence committee report said Mr. Mohammed was subjected to suffocation technique called waterboarding 183 times over 15 sessions, stripped naked, doused with water, slapped, slapped, Slammed into a wall, slammed into a wall, given rectal rehydrations without medical need, and shackled into painful stress positions and sleep deprived. So he didn't get sleep, and he was given rectal rehydrations, which I think is probably the least. <clears throat> Hold on. And slapped, he was slapped and slammed into a wall. How about, you might want to watch the volume because I'm about to lose my mind. How about you be the victim of 36,000 gallons of fuel slamming into a 104 floor building where 2,987 Americans lost their lives and now I gotta go to the airport and every time I go in I gotta deal with the TSA and they wanna give me rectal rehydration. Now I have absolutely 100% no pity and if this guy wants to admit evidence to this committee I think that that is beyond the pale. Oh, you were slapped, shake. You were slapped? Well, you were slammed. How about architecting something that annihilated this country's confidence and turned it upside down? Oh, but, but now I'm going to have all you guys suffer all these consequences, but now I have some things I'd like for you to hear me say. Like, no. Like, you're lucky that you even got out of... Were they keeping them in Poland? I hope they were keeping them in Poland. 
And I hoped it was like 50 degrees below where they were holding them. And I have no sympathy. Sorry, New York Times. I got no sympathy. This guy wants to... I don't care. I don't care who it is that wants to run the CIA. Uh, well, outside of people associated with the Taliban. Like, I got no problem. If, if Sheikh Mohammed has a problem with who's going to head up the next CIA, then I'm all for who's going to run the next CIA. <laughs> Incredible to me that, oh, well, Sheikh's up, upset. Well, Sheikh can go butt a stump. <laughs> I've never heard that statement. But he 100% can. Strip naked. People were stripped of their families. How about that? Golly. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, like, I practice a level of empathy, and I try to see both sides of issues. But this is just bogus. Like, hey, guess what? Um, this guy's going up to the pearly gates for judgment, and uh, the entity, the supernatural evil force that has compelled him and many, not made him, but compelled him, to do many misdeeds in which his eternal judgment is on the line, the evil one, Mr. Lucifer, would like to come make a statement. He's got six paragraphs. They're like, no! <sighs> Shake Muhammad. Okay. Shake this, man. I mean, come on. Get out of here. Rectal. I, I get a rectal rehydration every time I go through a TSA. I got... I'm out. I'm done. Went to Abernathy last night and got to give some remarks on uh, growing up, being raised in Abernathy, and how it's uh, shaped my mind and my thoughts in Texas politics. And had a great time. I want to thank the Abernathy Chamber of Commerce for having me. A great event. Such great people. And so good to see them all again. Get into a couple of things about that here in just a minute. But you've been efforting, little sister. Ross Ramsey said we're number 47 yes, in voting turnout in Texas. Right. And my question was, well, who are we beating? <laughs> so, okay, so we're actually number, according to the Huffington Post, we're actually number 46. Okay, so Ross was looking at something else. Uh, I mean, he, it, but it's fine. He was close. I'll take it. Exactly. So 47 um, right behind us is okay. Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. And the then volunteers. We have not volunteering to go vote. No. Okay. Arkansas at 48. Are you surprised? I mean, you grew I'm up next door. I'm not, you know, I'm not surprised that Arkansas Arkansas is behind Texas, but I am surprised that Mississippi's you know, before Texas. We need to take a note about this. Uh, we need to get somebody on from Arkansas because they in. I think they implemented a law about a decade ago about a minimum amount of kids that could go to a school district. I don't think wow, that they have really? it. Yeah, and so they did huge consolidations. It'd be really interesting to hear from a couple of level-minded people who many people don't vote for. <laughs> yeah. Come on and talk to us about the side effects of con consolidations in Arkansas. So Tennessee, so uh, by the Huffington Post... We're 47. 47, and we have a... 47, 46. I mean, we're 46, 46. according to Huffington Post. Okay. And um, 55.3% voter turnout. 55.3? Who is that? That's what Huffington Post says. Uh, it says an average of just about 55% of the Texas electoral electorate managed to make it to the polls in the last four presidential okay. contests. All right, so that's, that's all those things combined. So... 
46, Tennessee, Arkansas, and who's 48? Uh, so Arkansas is 48, but West Virginia is West, 49. West Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Joe you know, Rachel that kind of survives, surprises me a little, but I mean. Okay. And number 50, Hawaii. Number 50, Hawaii. Um, which, does that really surprise you? Uh, I, you know, actually, I mean, what can really change about Hawaii? Like, right, like, why would you like, want to change Your away? congressman can't stop. Like, I saw the, the Ford Prius or whatever get lit up by the volcano. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. By the lava. But, I mean, you're Hawaii, you're rocking tourism, and it rains, and you've got beautiful beaches. I don't think a whole lot can change there. Right. You know, other than like import prices and how do you make those lower? So I'm sure that on the other side of Hawaii does. radio program, there's some things. To, but I can also see how I'd be like, okay, whatever, it is what it is. So you want to know the number one state real quick? Um, I'm gonna. Can I guess? Yeah, guess. Um, I'm gonna say the number one state is New Hampshire. So number one is Minnesota, oh. and then number two is Wisconsin. Okay. Which is what you said earlier those, to be behind us. Those, no, no, no. I said Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming. So, okay, okay who's number 45? Uh, who's right above us? I think it is, well, Georgia's like number 43, I believe. Okay. I'll get that pulled up literally as soon as the computer screen loads. Okay. But, so I, I mean, this is pretty I interesting. I just want to know who's right ahead of us. Right. So that we get a sampling of where we stand and okay. where we are. So, New York is number 42, uh -huh. Arizona 43, okay. Oklahoma 44, <laughs> and number 45 is oh, Nevada. Okay. What? Yeah. Nevada. 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 Right. So right. strippers, hookers, and blackjack dealers. They vote because they want to keep that. They vote because they don't want to lose it. You know what I mean? Okay, but even if you like, oh, so you're voting your interest. I get it. But, hey, guess what, Texas? Strippers, hookers, and blackjack dealers <laughs> vote with greater proportionality than we do. Like, it just kills me. Like, with the Lubbock Auditorium Coliseum, like, somebody wants to go on, and there are these people. Like, I want to go back into all the different news outlet feeds now and just say, just one one question, did you vote? Like somebody I know, went, right? Somebody went over and over and over and over and over who put, like, 30 minutes out there on social media or more. Mm -hmm. And just go back now, after the fact, <laughs> did you with timestamp, but did you vote? Yeah. So... You got 30 minutes that you want to throw at me, but did you vote? Did you take 10 minutes and vote? Because we were voting for like four weeks, man. So Wyoming's number 29. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm super done with that. So uh, last night went to Abernathy. We put the audio up on the other side of Texas. And I don't want to dwell on this for, for super long, but, you know, people... People who wonder what's wrong with me or what's right with me, but mostly what's wrong with me, like how did I get into this independent streak and see things the way that I do, so much of that has to do with growing up as I did in Abernathy. And you know, I don't know if I've ever said this before on the program, but um, I'm trying to think if I've ever gotten into it with Arrington on air. You know, in 1979, I was brought home from the Plainview Hospital, in which 
Roots was a big deal at that time. Just good Roots. Enough. I'm familiar with that, actually. Oh, you are? Yeah, kind of. So do you know where Archie Bunker is? Yes. You do? Yes. What? Yes. Uh, what was the, the, the theme song for that? My dad used to watch it all the time. Um, Golly. I'm, love I'm and... Ma- no, no, not that I'm one. I'm surprised. <laughs> okay, so uh, the good old days. Yeah. The good old days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, 79, Dad actually held me out of the hospital. It's now Covenant, but it was like the Plainview something, the, the county hospital. Held me out of the window and said, Behold, something greater than even I. And he always told me that story. I had no idea what he meant until I watched Roots. And, um, but we went home near Mayfield off of 179 where Dad was helping farm. And... Then he took over a farming operation in 81, and I, I did get into a little bit of this with Arrington, but I'll just reiterate it here, that, you know, people think that I'm on Cotton's dole or somebody's dole to talk the way that I do, but here's what I do know. I know that, as I've written, farmers fight forces too big to fight alone, and this is what people in subherbs need to understand. And this is what Beto O'Rourke said that he came to understand. Whenever I interviewed, I don't want to just knock Republican folks in the suburbs, but, you know, Democrats in, in large cities like El Paso. A farmer fights fights too big to fight alone. They fight high foreign subsidies, tariffs, and non-tariff trade barriers. Trade, che- trade cheating abroad. Uh, the EPA's overreaches at home. Sometimes two or three of these fights simultaneously in the midst of a hurricane drought or blizzard and dad got in at just the wrong time in the early 80s was really proud of his work and was looking forward to doing this for a lifetime and then it rained in 81 twice as much in 82 and twice as much in 83 as it did in 82 and then there was the skyrocketing interest payments uh, interest rates i should say on all the overhead involved uh, in farming with fixed costs and input and otherwise, and it broke him. He could only withstand it a couple of years and just started off, launched, and just immediately got nailed. And, you know, that that's the plight with a lot of younger guys and why I take voice the way that I do. Well, people say, well, listen, I'm in the printing service and the government isn't subsidized. Well, listen, you don't face all sorts of unexpecteds all the time and also you aren't making sure that we have affordable fiber and food as we watch gasoline tick up in price and food prices have gone up and up and up but if you're if you're leaning on other countries i'm I'm preaching the choir to a lot of you but if you're dependent on other countries for that stuff then you're in trouble as a nation and um anyhow it was uh, really good to be there last night to talk with a lot of people about my background, my entry from Mayfield to Abernathy, and then what that community meant to me uh, growing up in that community, and then experiences I had afterwards, learning about, and you know, spent a lot of times in a master's degree focusing on rural economics and what makes rural communities turn, what makes them work, and how important local businesses are in those communities and uh, how important those communities are. I mean, Texas was grown out of the dirt 
of communities like that. They're still the salt of the earth, and we're glad to give them voice and give them a voice here on this radio program. A couple of notes that I want to drop with you on as we close out. Um, we have Curtis Parrish on tomorrow, uh, running for Lubbock County Judge. An interesting race beginning to shape up as we head into May 22. Curtis Parrish against Gary Bourne. Uh, we'll hear, I've never met Curtis Parrish, and he'll be in studio tomorrow. Your first impression, if you don't know him, will be my first impression as well. Uh, he'll come in, he'll leave, and then we'll discuss him <laughs> and what we thought. Uh, That's about how it always works, huh? Yeah, and again, uh, you got thoughts on it. Show at OtherSideOfTexas.com coming up on Friday, the Brandon Darby Hour of Power. I just want to add to our listeners that um, you can text in, email in, um to the show, no. and we will address, you know. I just, I, I'm not ready to take the calls yet. I mean, we have an hour. I've got things I want to hit on, and I want to, I definitely want to give people who like this program opportunity to interact with it. So just give us a, give us another month or so, and let me figure out the whole call thing and, and how I want to handle that in an hour-long format. But, yeah, you can text to 806-745-5800. Absolutely. That's how you can text in, 806 745 5,800. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've got. Uh, everything's up at OtherSideOfTexas.com. Finishing a piece tonight on how uh, the Texas craft brewer situation is a lot like uh, the little man versus Mr. Burns. And uh, Simpsons analogy. So I'll try to <laughs> entertain myself with that this evening and try to get that thing pumped out. But until then... Hey, got to go home, got to get home. Above average dinner waiting for me and a great family. And uh, we thank you for tuning in again. Thank you for telling a friend. Go to Other Side of Texas on Facebook. Like us, share us with your friends, share the podcast with your friends. And uh, we wouldn't be here doing this without you. So we're on for Ross Ramsey and for little sister Lauren Huff. We're signing off for now. Talk to you again tomorrow here on the other side of Texas. One night in Kansas City after we played the show Shots rang out as I stumbled home So I hid behind a dumpster in and out